Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's episode, we have Andrew Waitman, CEO of Ascent, fastest growing supply chain transparency company in the world, and Todd Olson, CEO and founder of Pendo, a product experience platform that helps software product teams deliver products users love. Happy Friday, everyone. My name is Gil Alush, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Metadata, and we're at the weekly podcast of Category Creator Podcast. Uh, we have two great guests with us, Todd and Andrew, and we'll start um, with quick introductions. Uh, Todd, maybe you can start us off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the company. Yeah, absolutely, Gil. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, my name is Todd Olson. I am the CEO and co-founder of Pendo. Um, Prior to starting Pendo, I've kind of had most of my career in, in enterprise software. I started uh, coding at, uh, at the age of 14. I started my first company at the age of 20. Um, had a couple exits um, around there. Most recently, prior to Pendo, I was the VP of product at Rally Software. That's uh, the role where I really got inspired to create Pendo. I was the uh, you know, product leader for an, an enterprise SaaS company. I, I felt that my ability to get good data on how my customers were using my product was, was hard and typically um, um, typically held back by you know having to invest in developers to actually hand instrument the product. That problem combined with the ability of uh, our users to adopt our software was just a core challenge for me. So uh, when I want to start something new, it, it's kind of where I start. And that, that's what Pendo does today. We have a platform for product teams to help them measure everything about the user's journey um, uh, within, a, within a digital interface. And we provide in-app messaging to help guide and uh, help so we make we, we drive value out of that. Cool, thank you. It's a cool background. Um, Andrew, maybe you can, you can lead us next. Gil, thanks for uh, having me on your podcast. Uh, super appreciate it. I'm uh, Andrew Waitman, the uh, Chief Executive Officer of uh, Ascent Compliance. Um, my, uh, my, my founder would call me a founder. In fact, he keeps telling me to add founder to my title. Um, I joined Ascent uh, through my boxing coach, who was also one of the founders. And uh, I had just grown a managed services business um, from kind of under 5 million to over 50 million. And the founder went a little squirrely on me. So I, I left and uh, joined Ascent. I'm a former venture capitalist, so I, I had one of the best uh, venture track records in Canada. Um, and in 2008, um, you know, 2008 was a it was a it was an interesting year. So I left the venture business and uh, became an operator through through a surprise set of circumstances. And then, um, you know, uh, six seven years ago, I went into Ascent, which was about 15 people. Today, we're well over 700 people. And um, what we do is we create kind of a work, a transparent work record for the largest manufacturers in the world to know what's going on in their supply chain to, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, live by ethical and environmental practices. So if you've heard of the term ESG, environmental, social and governance, um, you know, we're a benchmark ESG company so that in non-financial reporting, you have the records. 
as a Boeing, as a Tesla, as a, you know, Oracle, you can basically say, I know what's going on in my supply chain. It's uh, as you know, the reason you're having uh, me here today is it's an emerging market. And that's, I think, our topic today. But it's uh, it's an important uh, ESG is probably one of the hottest issues now, almost as hot as AI was a couple of years ago. And you need uh, an ability to kind of have a work record and a due diligence methodology, just like financial systems for non-financial measures. You need a method where you can ensure that the kind of uh, rules and regulations are being followed by your supply chain. So thank you very much for uh, having me on, Gil. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining. Um, both of you said, in, said it's very interesting things, I think, about your backgrounds. Uh, Todd, you mentioned starting to code at 14 and then starting your business at 20. That's awesome. Six years gap between those. That's that's really great. Uh, you monetize it quickly. And did I hear, did I hear you right, uh, Andrew? That you said your boxing uh, coach was the one who connected you. So you're you're a VC. You're in the dark side for entrepreneurs <laughs> anyway for for the operators. <laughs> and then you you uh, you moved into to becoming an operator. Uh, yeah, can like you tell I, us a little I, bit about that. Well, I was, you know, I, I don't know if any of you have, have tried boxing, but I started at the young age of 46. And let's just say the first 10 sessions, I got beat up so badly that I was really questioning my sanity of why I would do that. But I stuck with it. And boxing is a great way to stay fit. It's a great way. It's a very complex uh, art, uh, science, the beautiful sport. And my one of my founders, there's three founders at Ascent, one of them was my boxing coach. So that's how I got to know him. And when I left Pythian, he asked me to come help him out. And I said, look, uh, I don't want to jump into another role yet, but if you provide me an office, um, I'll give you advice. <laughs> and that literally was the contract. And so I volunteered for a couple of months and then they were like, we need you as our CEO. And so that, that was kind of around 15 people. And, uh, you know, that was six, six and a half years ago. So we've, uh, we've had one hell of a ride. Super cool. Uh, super interesting. And, uh, I completely agree about martial arts and boxing, uh, can you just tell me this? Do you guys still spar? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So he just Such a built. healthy way to to re remove all the density oh, you may absolutely. have sometimes. It's funny between the CEO and a founder. It's it's an amazing way to make sure that you're keeping the dialogue. And you know, Todd, you probably know this. Like it's really important. You know that that if you bring in an outside CEO, like that relationship is so crucial. And if we had anything, it's funny because it's boxing, but if we had any issues along the route, right, we were dealing with it Wednesday night. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Super healthy. Awesome. Well, thank you both for the introduction. Um, I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Todd, maybe you can start us off a little bit about category creation, just to kind of start the conversation. You said that you started, if I hear it correctly, you started Pendo on a on a personal need, right? You were working, you 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 were missing that. That was a pain for you, and you started a company. That is how many companies get started, I think, or many of the right ones. Um, when you started Pendo, did you have, given that you started other companies before, did you did you have that that idea of category creation in mind when you started the company or how did that come about? I had the idea that I wanted to sell the product. Uh, I had a vision of, hey, there's platforms for all these different roles, but I'm a, as a product leader, if I'm in an executive meeting, um, one, I'm usually showing like screenshots of, of what I just shipped. I don't have a lot of metrics. I don't have a system. I felt like woefully 
undervalued as a member of the executive team. So I, from day one, we said, we're going to sell the product. And, it, and of course, invariably in this startup journey, I meet and seed investors, you know, like, I, we think you should sell to marketing. There's a lot more budget over there. And I was like, yeah, I get it. Largest uh, variable budget in, in a company. Um, but why not sell to a group that no one else is selling to? <laughs> and then, well, they, 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 you get the, 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 the first question back was, well, they don't have any budget. And I was like, well, it's kind of hard to have budget for something when solutions don't exist to buy them, right? Like, which comes first, right? Yes. And I was like, look, if we don't build something to targeting something, no one's going to be able to ask for budget to actually do it. So, so that, was, um, that was the thesis day one is that let's sell to an audience that is being sold to. There's an opportunity to create a system of record and, and create something. Um, and yeah, we got a lot of pushback. Super interesting. What you just said, I think, is one of those moments I'm going to uh, repeat later, which comes first, you know, the, the, the budget item or, or something to buy with it. Uh, interesting. Andrew, did you, what about you when you went through, when you joined uh, the company as a, as a CEO? It was really small. And uh, I think well, it, 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 go ahead. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's an interesting issue in, in terms of an emerging market. So, you know, the, as a venture capitalist, which I was, you, you would always ask, you know, what is the alternative? And, and in the time I was venture investing, it was often Microsoft is going to do this, okay, in an enterprise, whatever it was, Microsoft is going to do this, right? But so the interesting question is, are you replacing something? You know, why was there not an existing need? So what's changed in the environment? And to Todd's point, like, is there a budget? And, and he makes a really good point. And we had this in our world because the people who were dealing with the engagement with the supply chain were kind of doing it as part of their second or third job. Okay. And they were using spreadsheets. They were using SharePoint. They didn't have a central solution. They didn't have any automation. And it was very tedious. Okay. Trying to engage with your supply chain, use email, et cetera. So there's a certain tipping point in any market where you go from using kind of what you would call, uh, you know, a, a, a duct tape solution, you know, often with spreadsheets um, or some other tools. And then there's a tipping point that says, this is madness doing this. And I would say in our world, um, particularly now that ESG is lit up, is it's moving from tactical to strategic. And, and I think, you know, Todd will probably speak to that as well. When markets emerge, they often start tactically. Somebody just looking for something to help them with a specific. But then over time, you know, and, and I saw the security industry 20 years ago go through this, you know, it was just, you know, Bill in a closet taking care of antivirus, you know, to today it's, it's, you know, are you getting hacked? Are you getting ransomware? So partly there's a progression of how big the issue is, how's it being solved? And is there a use of a SaaS tool? And, you know, to Todd's point, we sell um, to different departments. And some of them, part of these, the friction of selling is them finding where they're going to get the budget from to pay for this. But then they start to see the value and then they eventually bring it up to higher levels where they start to, you know, anticipate for next year how they're going to get that into the budget. And, and when you, uh, maybe Todd, maybe that's, that's more for you. Like when, when you, when you're tackling this, this conundrum, like, okay, they, you know, and you're getting a pushback, you know, why aren't you selling to marketing? No, no, no one sells to product. They don't have budget. 
Yeah, I think you also mentioned you didn't have as much of a place on the table like you would like. Uh, that was partially what you were trying to fix. I think we, I hear that a lot. I, I think Gainsight, uh, Nick, Nick Meta was mentioning customer success and making them a first class citizen. Uh, sounds like you're trying to do the same thing on the product side. Are there particular like principles or, or a framework that you keep checking to see that your initial thesis about this is a new category or this is a new animal is happening like from one to one to one when you started this and said this is going to be for product managers do things that are impossible to do today they're doing it in a in in, a, in that tipping point you know they're doing it with excel and it doesn't make any sense and you keep evaluating it or how do you confirm your that thesis about this is completely new uh, here i have a few kpis that shows that i'm on the right path um i look there's any there's I, mean, I think crux of your question to if i may paraphrase is, or rephrase it almost is like how do you know that you have product market fit in terms of of, of this and then how do you know that this ultimately is going to be a big enough category where you have a company of consequence that's really what it comes down mm -hmm. to you could be the master of a small category and the question is for many of us that raise venture capital like that's not enough to generate the sort of outcomes that's expected right so how do you know yeah. that it's big how do you know that the tam's large um yeah i, I think there's 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 maybe no, no magic um, number per se, but there's a variety of things we look at. You know, um, we do look at um, the investment we made in our brand and content. So, so I think when you're doing category creation, nearly every company that does this well has to invest in content, you know? And so we have a large content strategy. We actually manage a separate brand called productcraft.com that we created a few years ago. It continues to have very strong organic growth. You know, arguably one of the largest product communities in the world. And, um, and that fuels um, a lot of the, the, the brand recognition as well as inbound interests. Um, what's nice is we look at independent data, like number of product managers in the world and chief product officers of the world. It's actually increased in the last few years. We're even starting to see chief product officers emerge in um, uh, large enterprises, banks, um, and, and sometimes it goes between chief product officer and chief digital officer. I, I find them as actually pretty similar roles, but there's a significant increase in the last four to five years, which, which is um, probably one of the most telling early indicators that, that this is a must have when you have a role reporting to a CEO that obviously is, is uh, more must have. So I think it's those things that we look at to help us measure our success. I mean, the other thing though is um, increasing venture capital into product related startups. You know, I, I was doing a call, I think it was like Sequoia, like a few um, months ago. And they said, I, I wanna say, they said that they see a product startup like every week now. Um, and trust me, it's not the case. In 2013, we started and they're like, people thought we're crazy. Um, so I think, I think that's good. I mean, I think other companies pivoting and like we had several competitors that were more marketing focused when we founded the company. Three years later, all of a sudden they have product analytics. It's like, oh, wait, wait. No, like I, I go back on the internet time machine and show your marketing analytics last week and all of a sudden your product analytics. Like, when did this happen? What happened is, is like the success we've had and the opportunity started to become clearer to, to other folks um, who are probably a little hesitant to do it. So there's a lot of indicators that I look look to um, to help us realize we're on the right path. So, thank you for rephrasing the the product market fit and big big enough for an outcome. Uh, I remember that this was this was insightful. I remember when when I had the the CMO of uh, Launch Darkly, he was mentioning it was Keith, and he was mentioning 
you know, if, if there is the way for him at least to measure if this is big enough, not just being the, the, the master of a super small uh, category to your, to your words, but a big enough outcome for the VC model is if the TAM, if the ARR of the TAM is just like, I don't know, north of 100 million uh, at least. Uh, is, that, is that how you see that too? Is that how you answer the second part of the question? Um, well, yeah, it also ultimately comes down to TAM. It's what would, you know, and you can, I, I like, I mean, if you think just to, you know, so the problem with a new category, there is no top-down TAM. It's not like Gartner and IDC says, oh, you know, companies spent, like, you have no idea. So I have to do a bottoms-up TAM. Um, so you get a number of companies or a number of, you know, in some cases, individuals with roles, and you kind of try to extrapolate how much, you know, what's the average deal size that you can sell to these, these companies and or these individuals. And that's how you can extract the TAM. Then you got to look at what percentage of that would make a viable business. And yeah, we're fortunate now. We have, you know, we managed to carve out a very large TAM, you know, um, and, but part of that is also growing our platform. You know, I think we've taken also a platform approach to make sure that, so there's two aspects. There's how many companies slash, you know, what's the population of, of individuals or companies to whom we can sell and then how much value we can get. The value we can get is usually commensurate with how broad your platform is or how much, you know, how much value it delivers back. So I think, you got to invest in both. And um, so, so that's kind of how I attribute it. And, and we, we actually focus on both. So like, you know, we focus on broadening to whom we can sell, like, like adding features for large enterprises, going international, things like that. And then we look at, you know, expanding what we can sell to them through acquisition, innovation, things like that. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Jill, if I could on this topic, um, I call it stringing pearls together. So every startup has to start on some pearl and that pearl might be small. So whatever value you're adding, the niche may be nascent and small, but you create an ember. And from that ember, you get validity. So in our case, it was a regulation called conflict minerals. Okay. And there was a Dodd-Frank rule, 1502, companies had to file. So there was law, there was a time, there was a requirement. A lot of VCs stayed away from us because that looked like a niche offering. And there's usually moms and pops in every market. And those moms and pops for choice or for competence don't grow. So what you have to do is if you're going is you have to see where the next pearl is. First, we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. Okay, and that's that's a song. Um, which I often have in the back of my head. But the point is, to Todd's point about how you expand TAM, there's two dimensions. There's what is your target? Are we starting with SMB and going to mid-market and then enterprise? Are we starting in enterprise and moving down market and why? Okay, and can we? And what is the value that we're creating? And part of a sense thesis was you are getting every manufacturing company is getting inundated with human rights, modern slavery, um, ethical and environmental regulations that you have to have a work record around of some sort of due diligence. And so our thesis was if we could string a set of pearls together, and for me, in the six years I've been at Ascent, each year there was a hotspot, and we connected these pearls into a valuable platform. To Todd's point, if you listen to Jason Lemkin and you listen to the kind of explosion of SaaS companies, almost every founder CEO recognizes is become a platform. How do you become a platform? How do you connect 
more value to your original thesis. And if your thesis is big enough, supply chain transparency, you can navigate. And then the, the, the magic is that you navigate and own a piece of land and then start expanding that land. Okay, so I think the emergent category, Todd made a really important point, you know, Forrester and Gardner Group do not have reports on what you're doing. You know, the iPad when it first came out had no report on, you know, iPads. Okay, so when you're developing emerging markets, you have to, even if the, the first pearl is small, you have to then see how you're going to link it to the next pearl and the next pearl. I started in a business with over 50 mom and pops when I came in as a CEO, and I was a bit unnerved as a prior venture capitalist going, why is no company able to get to critical mass here, like an Ariba for supply chain? And the reason is it's a very complex market, and you have to navigate the pearls very, very carefully, which, which we've done. And I'm sure, Todd, in your, in your kind of there's things that you now see that you can do, which you wouldn't have started doing, but you can add to the value of your platform. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can also tell that Andrew's been on more podcasts and is better than me because he's dropping these metaphors like pearls. So, um, um, <laughs> but, but I love it. Uh, yeah. I think looking at all the, uh, you know, I have a less cool term. I call them adjacencies. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, I think looking at, at, at what markets are adjacent, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll throw out a Jeffrey Moorism since it makes me look a little smarter. Um, uh, you know, he, I love this bowling pin. Yeah. Um, we, we use bowling pins all the time at Pendo. I, I, a lot of the internal strategy things, it's like, okay, we, we can do one of two things. We can sell what we sell, the solution we sell to different adjacent audiences, or we can sell something slightly different to the same audience. You can't do, you can't do both. You can't sell something brand new to a whole new audience never sold to. So, how do we look at traversing the market just using that very basic uh, premise? And that, that's how we build a category. Awesome. Um, cheers. This was great, great, uh, great section there. I'm, by the way, not drinking coffee. It's just I don't have any proper glass. I'm going to get dinged for it later from the marketing team. Not looking great, drinking alcohol from a mug. You'll, you should get your participants to, you know, to, to talk about what they're drinking. Like, what's the level of alcohol? That, you know, you're 100% right. Or is it uh, light wine? Well, you know, if you would go back to all the episodes, you would, you would find it. I just missed to do it today. So thank you oh, for, okay. for getting the attention. What are you drinking, Andrew? It's it's uh, Kim Crawford. I don't know if you know your uh, your New Zealand uh, Sauvignon Blancs, but uh, <laughs> Kim, Kim's uh, one of the biggest exports out of New Zealand is uh, Sauvignon Blanc, and it's a beautiful um, uh, white wine. Very cool. Uh, and what are you drinking, Todd? I am. Uh, well, I'm at, at the beach today, so I of course had to to bring uh, a Cuba Libre. <laughs> so with Bacardi Eight, which is like my my kind of go to. Uh, my go-to rum down here. Awesome. Very cool. I'm no fancy like you. I'm just drinking a maker here. But we have to do another another uh, another cheers. Thank you for getting us to uh to discuss this. <laughs> All right, let's pivot a little bit from category. Um although I feel like there is a, a lot more pearls of wisdom uh to unravel here. But for now, maybe let's let's pivot a little bit. Hey, Todd, do you have a recurring entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur? Uh, experience that's your and and uh, and looks like also an engineer technical engineer point of view so i'm just gonna for the sake of this uh for this next few sentences i'm just gonna box you in the technical founder repeatable yeah. founder uh box 
And Andrew, uh, I'm going to keep you as the, as the dark side because you were a VC and a successful one. So that says a lot uh, in, in a good way. Uh, maybe when you both think about category creation, because both of you are creating categories in very different domains. Um, and you came up with the, with the, with the you know, like the, the, the concept differently, right? Like you experienced it personally, you were invited by your, by your boxing coach. When you started day one, given that you have very different perspectives and, and experience, uh, how did you think about this, this question? Okay, is this a new category? And is this, uh, how am I going to invest in this? I'm going to test it a little bit. I'm going to just make a big investment from day one. Um, how did you think about that from, from the moment you, you went on, that, on this path? And you, okay, I'm going to build a big company around this this is how I think about category creation, the investments I'm going to make starting now. Uh, Andrew, maybe you can start, start us off. Yeah, sure. So, so first, it's an, an interesting question you ask because how much uh, is adaptive and how much is prescriptive and anticipative? And let me give you the first point because in Canada, so I'm based in Ottawa, Canada, one of the challenges that the country has is building $100 million businesses, okay? So we start a lot of companies up in Canada, in Toronto, Waterloo, Montreal, uh, Ottawa, uh, Vancouver, et cetera. But we have a, a ch challenge getting them to thresholds. So to your question about an emerging space, first of all, I would say it, ambition is important, okay? So guys, do you want to just flip this at 10 or 15 million, which you know, literally hundreds of thousands of companies could flip at 10 or 20 million. And I wasn't going to take a leadership role if that was the intention of the original founders. And, and it wasn't. And so I said, okay, great. Okay, now let's figure out, okay, where we have to go in order and, and what, how big could this be? Okay, and so one of the things that, you know, to your question of imagination is, could I imagine, and this was, I was articulate on this from almost day one. I said, guys, can you imagine if we could sell a million dollars to a hundred customers? And that, that was my kind of first premise. Although I was selling something at the time, which was 50,000 ARR. Okay. And I said, can you imagine what it would take in engineering and why, okay, this company, this large manufacturer may pay us a million dollars a year. And can you imagine that in the next kind of three to five years, okay? So I think you have to have some semblance, but then you have to come back and how do you eat an elephant? You eat an elephant one pearl at a time, okay? One bite at a time. And so the, the trick then, the magic is figuring out what's the right navigation. Where's the urgency? Where's the pain point? How can you string, to Todd's point, adjacencies together? And in terms of anticipation or, you know, for me, it was, I'm an ambitious guy. I see a lot of moms and pops in this space, but I believe there's a potential network effect here. And let me just quickly describe what I saw and we're still not fully envisioned, but obviously there's lots of manufacturers and there's very large supply chains, but the supply chains and the manufacturers don't come together in a network. If you could create that network, okay? So I called it Salesforce and LinkedIn in one company, 
for manufacturers and their supply chain, then magic could happen. And we're on that path. So it's a very ambitious idea. Lots of people can think about it, but executing to that scale is a, a myriad of a thousand decisions. And so I, I would say from day one, and this was really your question, was I thinking about being big? Absolutely. Like I am not going to do a business unless I can see 100 million, you know, ARR. And then, you know, now I'm looking at 500 million ARR. So, but then it's how do you step back from that and figure out how do I get to that network? How do I get, you know, a thousand manufacturing customers over a billion dollars to bring their supplier network in and how do I leverage that to the benefit of both sides of the network. So you do have to have what I would call cognitive models that that you know and then you have to execute so it's fine you know being very you know kind of clever and smart lots of people can think good ideas then you have to get from a to b to c to d and you have to survive and part of that survival is articulating where you are in the story and why investors should join that story because that enables you to invest in the engineering and the go-to-market and, you know, is there friction along the way? There's friction along the way. Like you hit air pockets and you have to navigate, but that product market fit and that faith in where you're going has to be your North Star. Very interesting. It sounds like you validated, um, you know, Keith's from, from, from Launch Darkly's point about the $100 million ARR as the kind of critical mass. That First marker. You, yeah, yeah. That, that, that you pass. Um, Todd, what, what about you? When, when you entered, um, how did you, what was your framework of thinking about, and then the investment that you make, you know, like you make a decision that's great. You're thinking it's going to be huge. Do you put the money, you know, I think you mentioned brand being a big deal. I don't know if you can share a percentage that you spend on brand. Most companies, most B2B SaaS companies spend very little, uh, but maybe that's a big mistake. Um, can you share maybe a little bit about that around that context? Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess if I go back to where we started, I mean, I, I think brand did come a lot later. We didn't do that day one was we need to make sure we create a product that's disruptively better than other solutions in the market. That's that 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 alternatives, even if there are other, aren't other products, manual solutions are just a lot worse than what we're providing. Um, the other big thing that the thesis we had day one, so day one was that we were solving a problem that required a broad product. And that was probably the number one thesis we made in the company still today, I think is one of our biggest bets um, because we build a product analytics solution. And like, um, and you asked me as it's a context of a builder and a founder. So like I, I did write code for the first almost year of the company's history. So um, we, we built and launched a product analytics solution. That was a collect everything solution. It was, probably disruptively good just at that alone <laughs> when we first shipped it in you know, early 2014. Uh, and then we started building a messaging solution like the next month and then shipped that, right? Most founders, most startups would have just done the one thing and like the oh, you know, focus, focus, focus. It's conventional wisdom. We're always told to focus. And, um, and, and I kept rebuffing this saying, we are focused we're focused on a problem. The problem is driving adoption of software. And that problem just requires a broader solution. So I feel like I'm focused. I feel like I had to defend myself, by the way, like, like incredible numbers of times. Um, but just the solution was broad. And, and um, that was the thesis. That was, um, and, and yet we still had to prove that these two things go hand in hand and deliver value. So um, in a way that, again, was like disruptively better than anything else in the market. And so I think, differentiation 
is one of the words that I, I obsess over the most. And all above all other things, like whatever we're building, like needs to be highly differentiated. It needs to be kind of apparent uh, to the end customer and end buyer why this thing is unique and special. And if we're not doing that, there, there's something uh, not working in, in, in the product. So that's what I obsessed over. I'll also say, um, I'll add that like Andrew, I mean, I was thinking about 100 million um, in ARR basically day one. You know, that there, there was kind of a, that's where we're headed at least. And um, that's the focus. Uh, I, I wish I had said something as smart as, you know, a hundred customers paying us a million. I didn't, I didn't probably think it was that, that granular, but I like that model. I, 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 um, um, I didn't do it at the time. I probably did do it a few years after that, but, but um, um, yeah, I think that hundred million threshold was important at the time of course I'm thinking back to 2013-2014 to become a what you think you'd need to be to be a unicorn it would be about 100 ARR it's just now multiples are like 2x but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what they were then, so we hit it actually much sooner but um that was the funny part I thought it would have to get to there to to uh to, to get it uh it didn't um but I mean, reality is we're gonna get there anyway. So um, uh, that, that was less of a question um, at this point, but uh, um, but yeah. And then throughout the entire process, it's gotta be a mindset that you're playing the long game. Yeah, that's part of raising capital, lots of capital. You're playing a long game. And this is what entrepreneurs have to realize. Every time you raise something, you have to clear that bar somehow. And um, so everyone's like all happy. They're patting themselves in the back. You know, it's the oh, mo money, mo problems concept. I mean, the reality is if you have more cash, like you have, there's like, you've got another, uh, another hill to climb. And really you know what? I want to climb hills. I'm not here to settle on the hill I'm on. I'm here to get to the next one. Like it, it gets more fun. It gets more challenging. It gets more interesting. So like, I think one of my um, seed investors early on when we raised it some crazy amount of money like back, we, we had back-to-back series b and c's within six months of each other and it i think doubled the value of the business um i think people thought we we're a little bit crazy at the time um but but one of our senior investors says this is just what todd wants to do like he like it was in my head the whole time like zero question you just got to keep pushing and keep growing so i think you have to look ahead i mean um and you're playing a long-term game so brand's a long-term game um uh, building a broad platform is a long-term game. These are long-term games. You know, when you talk to some companies that are trying to get an exit in like six or seven years, I have no time horizon. I don't, I don't like people ask me all the time, what's your exit? There's no exit. Exit means I'm leaving. I love what I do. Why would I want to leave? Uh, where am I going? Um, you know, like, no, I mean, I, I'm young enough where I kind of have to work and why would I want to work anywhere else but here? So, so, um, so that's kind of how I've always approached it. Um, so, and just keep building. Um, and that's ultimately how you create a category winner, I think, is you don't give up. <laughs> you outlast other people. You know, so many companies go for a quick win or a quick exit or, or you know, some reason. But like, um, like, I wake up every day, like it's the first, you know. Uh, doesn't Amazon have some cool thing? Like yeah, day, day one, one. mentality. Everybody, yeah. Yeah, yeah day Again, one. He's also better at probably podcasts than I am. So like, yeah, he came up with this cool term. Yeah. Like, but I know I feel that way. You know, it's like bringing the energy every single day, bringing the intensity, the focus. I mean, I, I think that's, that's how you create category creation. That's how you, that's how you win. So. 
you know, you said so many things, uh, very interesting ones. Uh, I, I want to go into a, a different question, but I have one last one because I, I can't help by, by asking. You both mentioned the $100 million ARR story from day one. Hey, you had, you had this vision and you both also validate and say, but on the path there, there are a thousand decisions. There are all kinds of pearls, all kinds of tactics, all kinds of things on the way, milestones that you have to reach between this and being a hundred to $100 million ARR. And then you talked about branding. So when you have those three things in a Venn diagram, you try to figure out, okay, what I'm doing branding, let's say it's a long-term, right? Long-term uh, strategy, you said. So I start today with a small investment on branding. And there is the vision, it's three years from now, let's say, and there is current reality, survivalist reality today. How do you bridge the gap when you do branding from the promise to the reality? Uh, briefly, both to investors and to customers, maybe more to, to customers. Did, you, did, I, did, I, did, I, did, did you understand the question? Yeah, Why? yeah. Go ahead, Go ahead okay. Todd. And, yeah, well, I was gonna say, look, the investment in branding, you're gonna get some positive signals along the way, you know, whether it's um, inbound traffic from that, whether it's, um, yeah, honestly, you know, this is a classic, uh, um, when you're investing in something that's very long-term, if you're trying to get people on your side and excited about it, um, you have to find ways to tell stories. And, and, and one of my classic phrases I say in the company is like, if I can see something once, I can probably do it a lot more times. It's like the first time you hit a million dollar customer, it's like, okay, we just got a million dollar customer. What's the next one? Like if you can prove to yourself you can do something once, you can prove yourself you can do it lots of times. So same with the brand. If I can prove that this investment in brand yields some positive outcome, I know it can yield a hell of a lot more positive outcomes. So, so it's like, and what I'm always searching for is that story, that emotional grip that like, like tell the board or tell the employees, like, look, we did this, we invested in this like very cool event or this campaign or this brand building exercise. And this is what it yielded. Yeah, it's step one. Yeah, we got a long way to go. But like, if we can do this once, we can do this thousands of times. I mean, obviously, right? So, so I think I think that's where I always go to in the early days of these types of investment decisions because some people, you know, it's easy for you know a CFO to push back on you or a board member to push back on you. Really, like you're having like a head of community, you know, <laughs> like like that. You know, <laughs> you get all sorts of questions around things like this, but um, you have to connect the dots for them and tell those stories. And if you think, uh, and, and then once. Uh, you get people on your side, you, you wait, you know, a year or two and you'll start seeing the results. I mean, our investment brand are paying off big time now, but it started three or four years ago. And and now it's like, I forget the stats and the amount of inbound uh, as a percentage of our overall uh, demand gen, but it's staggeringly high um, because we did it a while ago. Um, uh, and it also means that, you know, it creates an opportunity for us to just drive more growth with outbound and other things. So it's just, it, it, these are great investments, but uh, it, it, the early days was all about storytelling in my mind. You mentioned the, the, the short-term return for some of these uh, investments and how it doesn't have to be there. Just one example. I remember when we did our first customer event, one of, one of the investors in Metadata came, came by and asked me, like, Gil, what's the ROI for, for this event? Like, how, how, many, how much sales? And you know, I had a hard time like, answering this question. I told him, actually, we did, we did actually close a few upsells during, during this one-day event. But, but I was thinking about it in similar lines to, to how, you know, like building a community and telling the story. So it's interesting. You, you had that conviction early. Um, Andrew, I know you wanted to chime in. 
Well, Gil, I was so I, I'll give you both an answer if you get asked silly questions by investors. Okay, um, so in in the there, there's an idiom in in advertising, which Gil, I'm sure you know. Uh, historically, we've all watched Mad Men, but you know, 50% of my ad dollars are a waste of money. I just don't know which half. Okay, so whenever somebody asks you what's your ROI, you say, well, half of it, I'm not sure. The other half, okay, I can tell you is X. Um, it, it's interesting if you think about COVID and the fact that your team cannot or has not been traveling. Okay. And, you know, Todd, you probably run into this skill. You probably have as well. Um, and so you probably saved a fair bit of money. Okay. And, and travel is one of those things where, you know, half the money you spend on travel is, is not a good ROI. The other half is excellent. You just don't know which half. Okay. Because you closed a lot of business and nobody was traveling. Okay. Um, but anyway, I digress. I want to go back to a point that Todd made and Gil, you were asking about, cause you were, you're on this brand, you know, brands, I think tie to aspiration always, you know, if you look at my LinkedIn, my very first time I put CEO of Ascent, um, I thought this line is going to be important of what I say. And so it, it better be. And I put supply chain transparency. Okay. So it's at an aspirational part of the brand. So a brand is something that, you know, like there's an aspirational part and then there's a reality part that, you know, as Todd speaks about it, it comes in narratives that you speak to, to customers, to investors, to employees every single day. And in some sense, you're refining it. I think one of those places where you're, you're constantly refining is in your content. And one of the things that we did as an emerging market, and you, you need this in spades, we have assembled um, 2022 of the world's top compliance regulation experts for manufacturers. So we have hired, you know, the top guy out of Intel, we've hired the top guy out of this organization, the top lady out of this on human trafficking, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the interesting thing is part of your brand, part of it is an evolving. So we just uh, yesterday and today held, you know, and, and Todd, I don't know if you do this, but as an emerging company, if you are going to be the major player, you need to create a conference around, you know, like Jason Lemkin did for, you know, building SaaS companies, you need the defining conference. And part of the defining conference is you have, and you, and you invite, and you bring together the subject matter experts of this emerging space. Okay. That space could be product um, lifecycle management. That space could be something else. ERP 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So I think the content is an important part of the narrative that develops over time of what is this space, how does Ascent play in this, and why is supply chain transparency so important in a ESG world? Like one of the interesting things, just to not get too into the weeds, but our world is being rocked positively. We call it a tailwind, okay, by the US government. And I didn't know this was gonna occur five or six years ago, basically saying our supply chains need to be thought about more strategically, more resilient wise, because we don't wanna be relying on China. Okay, now, did I know that, that supply chain transparency was gonna suddenly take US government, okay, carrots and sticks to enforce? that you're not using substances that China controls, or you're not doing practices in China that America wants nothing to do with. So it's really interesting how brands are 
you know, aspirational and large, but they're also adaptive to, you know, context and transparent supply chain transparency is becoming like the big thing. It's about ESG. It's about, you know, government. So I, I think they're a constant um, evolution. And I do think you're the, the, the uh, putting on a major annual event, uh, publishing that content and having your subject matter experts out there um, speaking all contribute to that thought leadership of defining a brand. And I think you have a great talent for answering the question completely and also consistently doing a sales pitch for <laughs> a cent. <laughs> I think well, you guys aren't manufacturers. So. That's a great. A, Ho hopefully, hopefully your, uh, your, 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 some of your listeners are. Oh, I got yeah, yeah, answer this, Andrew. Like, do you get the uh, the compliance folks together with a little bit of alcohol like this and see what content they create? So it's, uh, that could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Great segue. Please have another drink. Uh, Andrew, just so you know, in different episodes, I would, I would make you drink the whole thing, but, uh, but the answer was there. So good. So <laughs> no, not enforcing it. Hey, I know we only have 10 minutes left. I am having uh, the best of time. Uh, this time I cannot be... Over, so I wanted to, to touch a few other few other items that are outside of category creation. Although I think this was extremely valuable discussion. Maybe let me uh, ask you a few uh, a few brief brief ones. First one is hashtag fail moment. So maybe uh, Andrew, you can start us off. Tell us briefly about a fail moment in the process of trying to create that uh, that category, making that big story. Uh, you know, I think you mentioned without kind of volunteer that there were lots of friction or there is there is some friction that you mentioned. Um, maybe you can translate some of those exa one of one example into a hashtag fail moment. Uh, absolutely. I uh, came to mind immediately is <laughs> I didn't anticipate the complexity of the platform of where my aspirations and for the category creation, what a Boeing would require, what a Tesla would require. And therefore I underinvested in the engineering team and it nearly killed us, okay? So some companies are founder led with very strong technical. Our company was founder led with very strong sales and marketing uh, credentials. And I underestimated, and it really did hurt us for the first couple of years, the breadth and scope of the technical knowledge that was going to be required to build that enterprise scale platform. It didn't put us out of business, but our early large customers, it nearly killed us. Very cool. If you had to give yourself one line advice of, you know, when that happened, going back, what, what would it be? Always invest more money in the quality of the engineering team. Always go for much higher experience, like people who have built like enterprise scale systems. Nice, Todd. I look. You, you had an expression. So, do you want to? Do you want to make a comment on that? No, I, it's always good to invest in products. So, big, big believer. <laughs> plus one. Nice, like like that. Uh, what's yours, Todd? Uh, this is hard for me. Um, look at, like, doesn't have the, to come from Pendo, but just a hashtag fail moment that <laughs> you, you lost you lost sleep at night because you messed up. Uh, I, I, have to, I feel like I have to use Pendo one, so I use Pendo one. I, I think like, the, the earliest thing is we we did with them. Um, we we thought if we just kind of threw it out there, you know, um, and you know, free product selling startups that somehow it would it would would all just work and uh, i didn't like one thing i learned in category creation is that if you're doing something brand new some very few people may be looking for that new thing so um so so it it finally dawned on me that we should um 
actually have a sales sales oriented motion. So I started selling about a year into the company's history and um, which is pretty ironic given that we sell software to help people do product like growth. We, we actually were selling for most of our life. So, so that's the irony and kind of funny part of the whole thing. We, we actually now have a free product, but it's only now because the category like, like, like can sustain it. But, um, um, but for me, like, and I'd never sold a thing in my entire life. So, so, um, uh, I doubt that as a, serial, as a serial founder, I haven't said sold anything, but I, I'll let it go. <laughs> I mean, like carried a bag sold, like, 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 I don't know. It was a different experience for me, but anyway, that, that, that I think going from, um, I think going, going from, uh, kind of having shut shutting down a, a free product to like going more, more, uh, sales oriented was probably one of the, the biggest fails and actually focusing on the enterprise or like, okay, these startups, like, we want to make them successful, but like, we're just more enterprise software people. So like, um, the one line of advice for me is, is uh, recognize who you are. Like I'm an enterprise software person and try to get a motion working before you start trying to, to dabble in, in motions that are less familiar to you. So. Super fair. Um, thank you both for, for sharing that. If you, and I think you're, you also answered the, the if you went to, to go back, how, how you do that. If you had to share one thing about uh, yourself that other people don't know, that, that the public doesn't know, that uh, the TechCrunch, Saster, LinkedIn don't know about you, uh, Todd, what would that be? Yeah, I feel like our life's a book these days, isn't it? So, um, but, um, you know, I think one thing I don't talk too, too much about um, you know, earlier in my career, I, I, um, uh, I've had, I had two definitely arguably failed startups before this. So I don't talk a lot about the, the failures as much, but, um, uh, definitely a lot, a lot of learnings, a lot of lessons in there. So, so I think that that's something that isn't talked about, uh, too much. Um, do you think the bigger the failure, the better you are later on? Like it just made you like a kick-ass badass entrepreneur like afterwards yeah i think i think there's two things that my first failure the first failure is that you know, i was a 20 year old started a company we had an exit literally our investors thought we were too young to negotiate the deal and hired a banker and just completely collapsed the deal and and you know um absolutely horrific experience i didn't like lay off a whole bunch of people i'd hired from scratch and i was really young like 24 25 i'd never really done that before so like that sucked but I'll tell you two things I pulled away from that very fast. One is an unyielding confidence that if I, you can do it once, you can do it again. That's why I continue getting back on the horse, so to speak. It's like, if you get that close to some level of success, you immediately think that you can do it again. Now, the second thing is, um, given the level of success I have now, uh, and then the reason I had failures before, I appreciate this so much more. Like, um, if I... You know, because if I had just crazy success, then maybe I wouldn't appreciate this. But knowing how hard it is to get to this point makes me want to cherish it, take advantage of it, crush it every single day. Um, because like you don't find what we have, Endo, like very often. I mean, it's hard to build it. It's hard to sustain it. I think. I think. So it's one, it's confidence I can do it again, but then this realization how hard it is. <laughs> Those are the two things I pulled away from that. Beautiful balance between conviction and humbleness. That's cool. Um, Andrew. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I was thinking about 
your question, um, you know, we, we could go into so many dimensions of, you know, uh, you know, I was, I was adopted, had a shitty, absolutely shitty, uh, kind of childhood. Um, but, you know, somehow won the genetic lottery and, um, you know, uh, was able to go to university, you know, pay for it on my own, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the thing that might surprise people is as an introvert, okay. And this is going to sound paradoxical. I'm an extreme introvert. Okay. Um, but what do I most love? Okay, so the contrast between being a venture capitalist where you're really sitting on a board and making one decision, okay, once in a while. Um, the thing I love about running Ascent and running a company in general is the, the, the role of getting people to work together for a common purpose is like nothing, okay? Because entropy and chaos are the natural states of human existence. Okay. And we can go into that philosophically if you want to, but the CEO at some level is a person to get other people to work together for a common purpose. And to me, there is nothing more rewarding when you see that. And I call it magic. I really do. Cause I, I had it at, at Pythian and then the founder went crazy on me. That's chaos. And um, I, I have it at Ascent. And it is a beautiful thing. And it's such, you can, you should almost just whisper about it. You shouldn't talk about it on podcast because it's so fragile. It's so fragile. And, and if you can get, whether it's 700 or a thousand people or 2000 people to work together for a common purpose. And in our case, this purpose is, is wonderful. It's to make sure we have better environmental and ethical practices throughout manufacturing. Um, there is nothing I can't imagine, like, you know, and don't tell my investor or board this, but I would do this for no money, okay? Um, it, it, it is, it's a beautiful thing to be able to see that orchestration. And, and I think that's far more rewarding in some sense, um, you know, uh, and, and so, you know, I obviously I don't talk about that philosophy uh, a lot, but I truly think that's what's special about, you know, uh, being in the position I'm in. Beautiful. Thanks both for sharing. You shared uh, intimate things and very valuable ones. So very much appreciate the candor. Uh, this is great. I took uh, three pages of notes. Uh, hopefully you didn't mind during, the, during this podcast. I learned a lot. Uh, really appreciate you sharing all of these about yourself and about your journey and about creating categories. Uh, I learned a lot and I think our listeners as well. We'll finish with a, with a cheer. Uh, Gil, thank you for having us. Thank you, Andrew. Likewise. Thank you, Todd. I really enjoyed your, your Nice company. to meet you, Todd. Yeah, likewise, Andrew. Great, great being here. Thanks, everyone. Gentlemen, have a wonderful weekend. I really appreciate your, your contribution. Here. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. 